Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Wednesday, August 4th, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool analyst Clay Bruning as we talk about the vertical farming innovator, App Harvest. Hey, Clay, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me, on, and I'm excited to uh, to talk about the future of agriculture today. Yeah, I love it. Thanks so much for joining. I'm I'm actually suspecting that a lot of our listeners are probably already pretty familiar with App Harvest. One of the other industry-focused hosts, Jason Moser, he hosts our financial show on Mondays. He has had both the App Harvest president, David Lee, as well as the App Harvest CEO and founder, Jonathan Webb, on the show in prior, I believe, prior months this year for interviews. And so if you haven't given that a listen, I definitely encourage all of our listeners to go back, check out those interviews because, A, they're very informative, but also I think you can hear the passion that both the president and co-founder have for this business, which is always fun to hear that straight from the horse's mouth, so as to speak. Uh, but I was thinking that we could spend the bulk of today's show, kind of doing a, a bull versus bear debate on App Harvest. It probably is overstating our opinions on it. Uh, Clay, I know you're a big fan, but I have to say I'm, I'm a little bit of a skeptic myself. I spend a lot of my time actually looking at cannabis companies, and those businesses just have razor thin margins because of, of how challenging it is to kind of take a commodity and make it something that is investable for shareholders. And it's really been not fun. So when I think about App Harvest, I get excited about their mission, obviously changing the landscape for vertical farming, the future, right? You call them an ag, ag tech business, the future of agriculture, but I can't quite get over the investing side of it. So I'm hoping that you can change my mind here for full transparency, that might be kind of challenging. But at the very least, I hope you can maybe give some of your opinions for our listeners, maybe change some of their minds on the business. Um, yeah, that was a lot. Sorry for talking all there. Before we get into today's show, though, for people who haven't listened to these prior episodes, can you just give us, a, I guess, a quick synopsis of what is ha- App Harvest when we talk about ag tech? What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. So ag tech is just agricultural technology and App Harvest specifically is focusing on feeding the future in a sustainable manner. So they have kind of piggybacked off of the Dutch idea of circular agriculture, which is the concept of minimizing your inputs while also being able to maximize your output. So think about those inputs as you know sunlight, water, you know, in a lot of conventional methods, pesticides or chemicals and things like that. And they do this by having what's called CEA or controlled environment agriculture or you know vertical farming where you are growing more in, in less acreage. Um, so right now App Harvest only has one operational facility that harvested their first uh, set of tomatoes in the first quarter. Um, they have four more under construction um, and they have a goal of having 12 by 2025. So, um, you know, off to a slow start, but, you know, it's it's going to be a, a long-term vision for this company. Uh, and like I said, first harvest in the first quarter of 2021, um, they sold just under 4 million pounds of tomatoes that generated uh, just over 2 million in sales. 
Uh, so very early, early on in the story of this company. And it's an interesting choice for App Harvest to go to the equity markets. Um, this was a business that went public via a SPAC structure, uh, preferring to tap the equity markets as opposed to the debt markets to, f- to fund its expansion. And historically speaking, when we look out at, I, I won't say ag tech businesses, because this is a really new space for a lot of investors and a lot of businesses, I will say though, like traditional greenhouses, these business models tend to go to debt markets before they go to equity markets. And the handful of businesses that have been competing in the produce space that are on the equity markets, I think Village Farms comes to mind, have always had a challenging uh, time, I think, explaining to investors why they deserve to be publicly traded, right? Like why they're going to result on a return on your investment as a shareholder. But App Harvest flipped that model on its head. I think they're really making the argument that you can be a business that is trying to do good things in the world. So increase the sustainability of food while also being a good investment. It's that second part I I struggle with. So maybe tell me why you think this is a good investment. Give me your your bull case here. Yeah. And and just as kind of a a forewarning, this is a super speculative investment. Like I said, they had their first dollar of sales in the middle of the first quarter, which was also their first quarter of ever harvesting produce. So by no means uh, is this one of my highest conviction um, you know, companies that I've looked at. It's just kind of me thinking about a vision of what the future uh, of not only agriculture, but the food supply chain as a whole looks like. Um, so I had to get that disclosure that this is a super speculative investment. I'm you know, looking at this company not in five years, but more so decades. Um, and the first thing that gets me about uh, excited about this company, excuse me, is that there's ESG focused in everything they do. Uh, they're certified B Corp, meaning they have third party uh, people look through their entire company to ensure that they are sustainable in things like environmental impacts, how they treat employees, how they treat their communities, and how they treat their customers. Um, they are actually just one of four public certified B Corps in the world. Um, and then on top of that, they are really focusing on improving and solving a lot of problems, not only here in the U.S., but in the world. Uh, so the U.N. forecast by 2020, or, or, excuse me, by 2050, the population is going to grow about 30 percent to 10 billion people. Um, and that's going to create 50 percent more food demand across the globe. Um, and then you think about how much fresh water is dedicated to agriculture already. And that's 75% of all fresh water in the world is already dedicated to agriculture. So something has to change there um, because the, the demand is gonna far uh, surpass the supply if conventional agriculture stays um, as the main source of food. And then I think about uh, just today or last night, um, you think about California instituting an emergency response to the drought. Uh, they are going to limit certain farms um, in a couple weeks to using fresh water because the drought is so severe. And some people even say California has been in a drought for 20 years um, and 95% of Western states as a whole are in a drought. And the Western states are typically the hub for a lot of agriculture produce. Um, so those are a couple things um, in terms of the problems they're solving. And then land degradation is a whole nother thing. So 33% of the world's soil is has degraded to an extent um, which will lead to unharvestable conditions moving forward. So you think about lack of water and lack of land um, continuously getting worse 
every year and every decade. Uh, so something has to change there. And then uh, something the CEO said with, with Jason uh, in one of those uh, in, or excuse me, interviews you, you mentioned um, really stuck with me. The idea that sustainability is profitability. So they're focusing on minimizing inputs. They use 100% recycled rainwater. Um, they only use 1.8 gallons of water per tomato, which is 92% less than the global average. Um, they're within one day's drive of the entire U.S. population, which not only decreases transportation costs, but should decrease waste. Uh, and waste, 40% um, of all produce is wasted. Um, so that's a big, big way to, you know, reduce waste, reduce costs. Uh, they also use natural sunlight to grow, you know, when weather is applicable. And then they also use autonomous robots, um, to harvest a lot of their produce, uh, which is pretty early innings. They just acquired a company called Root AI that has um, a robot that can autonomously sense when a plant is ripe and ready for picking. Um, so they use that to kind of decrease some of those costs and in theory, increase some of their operating leverage and you know, way down the line, their, hopefully their profitability. I, I love that quote, sustainability is profitability. I'm going to push it, though. I'm, I'm going to agree with that quote, but I don't think that profitability equals investability. So I don't think just because a business can be profitable that it's going to be a good return on shareholders' money. And I think that's where I get hung up. So when I think about other vertical growers, Revel Greens, Little Leaf, Gotham Greens, right? Vertical farming has been in development for decades, and it's... They're not the only point is that App Harvest isn't the only business that is working in the business of, of vertical farming. It's been around a while. But these other businesses have really focused on essentially only the, the economic, only the produce that can be grown consistently and economically, which tends to be these baby greens. So you think um, arugula, for instance, tiny lettuce heads, these things that they can grow really economically in a vertical farming environment. And they're fine businesses. They're profitable businesses. I think all of them, again, went to debt markets to finance because they could make, make those payments, but they're not necessarily great investments. So I'm curious, what do you think makes App Harvest different than all of these other produce grower, growers, than all of these other vertical growers that are competing, I suppose, for the same placement in grocery stores or with suppliers? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing and, and something management really stresses is their proximity. Like I said, they are within a day's drive to 70% of the U.S. population, and they're headquartered in Appalachia, which is, uh, for them at least, in Kentucky, Appalachia is kind of a region um, in the middle the middle of the eastern um, coast. But uh, Appalachia has actually had three of the wettest years um, over the last 10 years uh, in Kentucky's history. Um, so you think about using that recycled rainwater, rain doesn't seem to be much of an issue, whereas California, Arizona, uh, and a lot of other Western states where vertical farming is beginning to be uh, adopted or has been adopted for some time now, they struggle to actually get that water and you know they probably have to use a lot of fresh water. So I think the proximity is a big thing for them. Uh, they also have some uh, impressive distribution agreements. Um, the most important one is uh, Mastronardi, I think is how you pronounce it. So they have access to national grower, or excuse me, grocers 
uh, and food chains like Wendy's, Walmart, Target, Aldi, Kroger, kind of you name it, they're in there. Um, so that lets App Hargis really focus on the growing uh, rather than the logistics of how are we going to sell all these millions of pounds of produce that we have. Uh, so that, I think, takes a big burden off of management to just have the peace of mind knowing that, okay, we're going to focus on growing and then they're going to handle just about everything else. Um, and then on top of that, I, you know, food is the ultimate recurring revenue source for any company. Everyone eats food every day, three times a day. Um, so I don't necessarily think that, you know, it's going to be a winner take all market. I think there's a lot of room for multiple multiple companies uh, to have a, you know, a decent market share. Um, so I don't think necessarily they're going to be the top dog or for that matter, um, you know, a top producer. But I think it's the ethos of this company, the idea that they are helping to revive Appalachia, which was a huge, huge coal mining industry. Um, they're helping a lot of those coal miners pivot and work in a new and emerging techno- technological industry. Um, so I just really enjoy the ethos and the whole idea of not only you know eventually gaining some profits, but helping people benefit um, where they work as well. To be frank, I'm still getting hung up on the same spot with this investment though, which is again, a great business. Clearly we all need to eat, but just because we need to eat and they sell us tomatoes doesn't necessarily mean that it's good to invest in the tomato grower. And I think if you look at uh, produce businesses to this point, if you look at you know Nestle or, or all the you know businesses that supply what is supposed to be a really critical input into everyday life tend to be some of the worst performing investments because they get commoditized so easily. And I, I, I am brought back to Village Farms, which is a really interesting case study in this. So they're a Canadian produce grower turned uh, joint venture cannabis company. They were had decades of experience growing specifically the same type of tomatoes that App Harvest is looking to grow that's on the vine, beefsteak tomatoes, um, in addition to things like peppers. And their management for for years, for decades, every single time you get on an earnings call with them, it was, oh man, well, the weather in Florida was a little bit wetter this year. So the the our competitors were able to get to market a little bit before us or a little bit after us. And it resulted in these tiny basis point changes in their margins, which led to huge movement in terms of the business's profitability for these little things that they had no control over. And they had master growers on their team. In fact, a large number of the growers at App Harvest actually were poached from Village Farms. So the experience on the team is the same, but Village Farms realized this was just a really hard industry with razor thin margins, which is why they they then tried to get into cannabis. It's a different story, but I'm brought back to this comment that management made on their May call. And I'm, I'm going to read this quote out um, and I, I'm going to hear your take on it. The, the quote is, The pricing environment in the tomato market has swung from one extreme to the other, as elevated prices of last year due to high at-home demand have given way to one of the lowest pricing methods with tomatoes, specifically the commodity tomatoes like tomatoes on the vine or beefsteak varieties that we've seen over the past 10 years. As a result, although our volumes were up, driving a 9% year-over-year increase in produce sales, our gross-adjusted EBITDA was down 50% year-over-year. That, to me, that quote perfectly describes the produce market, which is you can have demand for tomatoes, but the economics, right? The economics of selling produce is just so challenging. So maybe talk me through what the economics for, I know they're they're selling tomatoes right now that may expand in the future, but talk me through what the economics look like for the tomatoes currently and what you think it may look like in say five years. 
Yeah. So like I said, they had, I think, 2.3 million or so in sales on just under 4 million pounds of tomatoes in the first quarter, uh, which equates to about 60 cents of sales per tomato, which you know seems pretty low when you consider the average sales price, uh, according to the Federal Reserve, is about $1.80 for tomatoes right now. Um, and I'm sure uh, Mastronardi is taking you know a cut of that by taking over the distribution agreement. Um, but it, it, it does span beyond tomatoes. So they have one facility under construction right now for strawberries, which um, after you know looking at the specific brand that they're sold under, the Sunset brand by Mastronardi, um, on Kroger and Harris Teeter, I think those sell from three to four fifty a pound. Um, so there is somewhat of a premium for you know organic. Uh, you know, local produce there. Um, but it, it is interesting. And this is kind of a question mark for App Harvest is the idea of once they have a sustainable brand, are they going to leverage that brand for pricing power? Because like I said, they're very local. Um, they are sustainable in terms of how they grow, but they're a public benefit corp. So they are supposed to benefit everyone, including their employees, their customers. And management has specifically said they don't plan on raising prices, um, at least substantially. They want to remain in line with other um, kind of comparable products. Um, but in terms of some of those unit economics, <clears throat> long term, the company is forecasting 12 to 16 percent EBITDA margins on tomatoes specifically. Uh, they haven't grown anything else, so they haven't provided any forecasts on uh, their berries, their uh, leafy greens, <clears throat> their cucumbers that are all um, products that they expect to grow in the future. But it's worth noting that 12 to 16% EBITDA margin for tomatoes was before they acquired the autonomous uh, harvesting robot Rude AI company. <clears throat> um, so I expect it'll probably be on the top half of that 12 to 16% per range, if not even a little higher from some cost synergies that will let these robots harvest rather than having, you know, manual labor, uh, pick these tomatoes on a quarterly basis. Um, it will require, you know, some oversight from these, uh, these cultivators, but it allow them management has said it's going to let them, it's going to free up some of their time so they can focus on more complex tasks that these robots aren't quite ready for. So. I, I think that the root AI deal is by far the most interesting thing about App Harvest. I even find myself kind of scratching my head and wondering what the thesis was for App Harvest before they made the purchase of Root AI. Because if management isn't planning on increasing the costs associated with buying their specific tomatoes, then the only way they're better than any other produce seller on an economic basis, again, on all these moral bases, you can make many arguments, but on, on soliciting investor money, the only way they, they end up better is that they have lower costs. And it's challenging when you're going up against these very ingrained producers that are producing at very, very low costs and, and regions of the world that have year-round growing seasons. So without the root AI system, I was a little confused about, okay, well, if you're not going to sell at a higher price point and you're not going to lower costs, then you don't really get anywhere with this. I think the root AI system has the opportunity to lower those costs. I, I wish they provided more information about that deal in particular, because since this is a business that went public via SPAC, we don't have any sort of like audited 10K to go off of here. And 
a lot of the information that we're we're getting is just based off what the company itself is reporting or Root, Root AI reported pre-acquisition. In fact, in our notes, um, I was under the impression that Root AI was only for tomatoes. It was so hard to find any information, but you you corrected me. You linked to a video where you can see the Root AI system picking strawberries and cucumbers as well. If that's something that can lower labor costs, that will be really interesting in my opinion. I will say I'm a little bit nervous. The labor costs associated with with growing produce and the areas of the world where large producers are currently growing are very low. So when I think about the technological expertise that needs to go into somebody who is managing and developing these systems, I do wonder if that ends up being deceptively costly. But you make an interesting argument that the root AI system could potentially be licensed. And this is where I get excited. I hear the word licensing and I think to myself, oh, they have something proprietary that they can then sell at a really high margin to other vertical growers. All of those competitors that I just mentioned that are growing vertically, maybe specific things, again, those baby greens, this is maybe an opportunity for them. But I don't believe they have any license in place. They just made this acquisition. So I'd be surprised if they did. Yeah, I'm not. And again, you mentioned it, no 10K, and I have to just plug it in again. It's a super speculative investment, not for the faint of heart in terms of, you know, day-to-day price changes, which I advise all, all listeners to, to you know, t- tune out. Um, but yeah, no no licenses agreement I, I'm aware of. They did, uh, management has mentioned that is a potential uh, new revenue stream that they can bring in. And like you said, very high margin. Um, and in terms of cost reduction, so this was something management talked about. So on a 60 acre tomato farm, they said they would have about 15 million of adjusted EBITDA. And again, I'll say adjusted there, which, uh, you know, isn't what I would love to hear from management. I would prefer that just gap EBITDA margin there. Um, but that after the root AI deal, they increased about 50%. So from 15 million on a 60 acre farm, they jumped that up to about 23 million. Uh, to recognize some of those cost savings uh, and improved leverage within the harvesting business. So the Root AI deal is honestly what really got me excited when I was doing my my research, watching some of those videos, reading uh, the call with with management from Root AI, and they brought the whole team. I think they had 15 15 members. Um, Their CTO or the App Harvest CTO is the former CEO of Root AI, and he's going to be completely focused on uh, root AI and innovating in that space. So it won't necessarily recognize immediately immediate cost benefits because it is pretty early in their robot Virgo's uh, life cycle. But you know you can kind of go a lot of different places when you think of an autonomous robot in the produce industry. Uh, I mean, I was just baffled a couple of weeks ago when I was in California, I was passing strawberry fields and there were 50, 60 workers in the fields manually picking the strawberries. And I was just shocked there was no autonomous system to do that. And then of course I, I read about Root AI and I got so excited. Um, so the Root AI is really exciting in terms of cost energies uh, and additional revenue streams and optionality in terms of where they could take this technology and uh, expand the use cases for it moving forward. If you were irritated by the adjusted EBITDA margins, then I don't know what to call myself when I saw the fact that they were guiding for what they call free cash flow before growth spend, (laughs) which is apparently their free cash flow, excluding all the money they would need for development of new facilities in the future, which is um, a lot of money. (laughs) 
<laughs> to put it to put it bluntly. So this is a business that I think we both recognize. At, it's growing. It's very small right now. They're going to need to raise capital. They, they're pretty well capitalized after raising money by going public, but at their current spend rate, plus all of their planned developments, they will need to raise money in the future. But I think another area where I get hung up on again is is building away from tomatoes and into their leafy greens. Their own projections have by 2025, leafy greens still accounting for less than 10% of their total revenue. So even if those end up being higher margin than their, their vine crops, their tomatoes, then it's still very marginal in terms of what it's actually doing for their bottom line and top line since it's responsible for such a small portion of their revenue. They seem heavily focused on tomatoes right now. And given the fact that, as Village Farm says, we're in one of the worst pricing environments for tomatoes that we've seen in the last two decades, it's, I don't know, I just have a hard time getting excited about whether or not there really is optionality here in terms of their produce line. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, again, this is a, a decades long game. They're not going to have uh, another facility operational until next year, I believe, which will be, they'll have one strawberry farm operational in the second half of next year, as well as one uh, leafy green farm uh, in the second half of next year. But like you said, it, it's going to take a lot of money um, to create these and construct these facilities. Uh, and I actually have a whole a whole section in in my research uh, document in terms of management excuse me management's promises and what they expect years in advance to ensure that they're hopefully meeting those expectations. Um, and the most important one to me is they've said they're going to uh, acquire attractive non dilutive financing for all twelve of their facilities by that they have for 2025. So far, they have uh, done that for five of them. They recently had a $90 million financing um, with some private investors um, in terms of tapping those debt markets. So um, in terms of expanding their construction facilities, they've essentially guaranteed, which again, if they have to dilute shareholders to uh, construct these facilities, that changes the complexion of this company for me because that's you know, management essentially not making or keeping up to their word. Um, but when you think about operations, they haven't mentioned anything about that. So you think they're probably going to be diluting shareholders, which is, of course, a risk and, you know, decreases your stake in a company um, with, I think, about a $50 million quarterly burn rate. And I think they have $300 million in cash or so. So it's not a matter of if, it's a, it's a question of when they're going to eventually tap the equity or debt markets. Um, for operations. Um, so, you know, that's something as a, as a shareholder I'm willing to take. And again, this is like a, an ethos company for me. Um, I, I want to help them support growth and, and disrupt the agriculture agriculture industry for the better. Um, but that is 100%, uh, you know, a risk in terms of just diluting shareholders over the longer term. But um, I'm at least encouraged that they have been able to acquire attractive financing for five or six facilities at this point, like they've promised. Well, I'm definitely interested in App Harvest. I think it's an interesting business. Um, I've done some research into other businesses that are, are similar. I think Agrify comes to mind. Um, so it's interesting. <laughs> I'm saying the word interesting a lot, and, and that's kind of where I find myself. It is a, a, a cool business that's doing something important. I'm still not convinced that they're ever going to be able to raise prices because of their their certified B Corp uh, status, the public benefit corporation aspect that maybe prevents their pricing power from ever being expressed. 
So for that reason, plus not having any data to show that they can actually produce at a lower cost, right? They have negative gross margins right now. For all those reasons, I think I find myself still wanting to sit on the sidelines, but I can respect this as a speculative investment playing on an industry that is increasingly important that needs to be disrupted. And I appreciate the work that App Harvest is doing to attempt to disrupt it. I also love the passion that obviously you have for the business and the research you've done into the space as well. Yeah, and if you wanna if you wanna see some passion, there are a couple interviews with this with the CEO. Uh, there's one that comes to mind with uh, I think it's Andrew Zorkin on on CNBC where he's with Martha Stewart and he's in one of his facilities and he, he's going crazy at the end of uh, at the end of the interview saying this is the future of agriculture. Uh, it was it's really entertaining. So if you have some time, look up uh, Jonathan Webb CNBC App Harvest interview and it's uh, some pretty good entertainment there. Oh my gosh. I I don't know how I've gone this entire episode without mentioning the fact that Martha Stewart sits on this company's board. That's correct, right? Um, I'm not not the biggest fan of Martha Stewart, um, either as a person or as an investor, especially. Um, So I'm going to refrain my opinion there other than to say, I would prefer, I think, quite literally anybody else to be sitting on the board of this company over Martha Stewart. I think she has thrown her name around the number of board positions on companies that she provides very little value to. If they can have value out of a Martha Stewart branded tomato, then more power to them. I don't know if I see it happening. Oh gosh, I just hate that involvement. I love the founders team, hate Martha Stewart's involvement. <laughs> okay, I won't I won't go on my Martha Stewart rant. I think I've done it before on the show, so I'll I'll stop it there. But Clay, thank you so much for coming on and, and providing your insights and your thoughts. I know this is a business you've done a ton of research on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, don't be afraid to shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Clay Bruning, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!